0: Sabu go Recently, in conversation with one of the monks, I, I passed the comment that I thought meditation was highly overrated. And um, they looked at me with a shock on their faces. You know, who am I living with? you know the, the abbot of the monastery saying that meditation is highly overrated. And, and that is my view, but that doesn't mean to say that i don't think that meditation is very important i do think meditation is very important and it's how we approach it and how we view it that determines whether it's really going to work for us or not and so when i say that i think meditation is highly overrated it's not it's not dissimilar from saying you know i think tai chi is highly overrated Tai Chi could be highly overrated. If we approach Tai Chi as a cure-all, if you think that doing Tai Chi for an hour or two hours every day is going to cure all your problems, when in fact maybe what you need to do is is, um, stop eating sugar. Uh, Eat a lot of sugar and caffeine, your your system's going to be way out of whack, and no amount of Tai Chi is going to bring you back to balance. Or some diet you know you say vegetarianism is highly overrated one could say that I think that that could be the case if, you know somebody could be very committed vegetarian I, I speak in praise of vegetarianism but but if it's not an end in itself if if what somebody really needs to do is is uh, look at the fact that they're angry about life and I've met vegetarians who are who are uh, you know, ready to bash up people who eat meat. <laughs> you can't whack somebody because they eat meat. Or, or some particular therapy, uh, non-violent communication, NVC. Many of you will be familiar with this, but I've had people who trained in NVC kind of virtually threaten me if I don't train in NVC, uh, which is a kind of, a, I think, a, not quite the right approach, really, I think. One could say that NVC is highly overrated. The point being that if we think that any of these things in themselves are going to fix all our problems, then I think we're making a mistake. And so on this occasion I was saying that I think meditation is highly overrated because a lot of people do approach meditation thinking that you know concentrating on their breath is going to fix everything. And it won't. uh, In fact, it can make things a lot worse. It may be 5 or 10 or 15 or even 20 years before you realize that the way you approach meditation has made things a lot worse for you. And so I do think the subject is is worth addressing. Um, What are we doing when we're meditating? When, as I was saying at the introduction this evening, as we come to sit, really taking a few moments to check that we're very, we're being very careful in how we pick up the meditation object, mm-hmm. that we're approaching meditation in a kindly way, mm-hmm. that we're approaching meditation in a very patient way. If we're not careful how we pick up the meditation, then our daily life habits, the kind of habits that we've accumulated over a lifetime and, Habits of heedlessness, that because there's not been anybody around clear enough and confident enough and honest enough to just say, hey, do you see what you're doing? You know, We let these habits accumulate, and I think this applies to all of us. So, so we need to be very careful if we're going to pick up this very powerful tool, as I mentioned during the introduction to the meditation this evening, this is a very powerful tool we're going into the hard wiring when we concentrate the mind the heart and the mind become collected one pointed we're in a state actually of of considerable vulnerability and we want to take care how we go into that state not be not be too uh, certainly not be heedless or careless about how we enter into it because even though we might be uh, clued up enough to be able to see gross greed, if there's gross greed in the mind, like we're sitting there, you know, spending all the time thinking about what you're going to cook tomorrow or what you're going to eat tomorrow, and when you're supposed to meditate, you say, well, that's, you know, probably not the best way to be spending your time in meditation, if you're just really getting lost and thinking about cooking. Or if you're really dwelling on hateful thoughts and thoughts of resentment and you know, probably you know, we're all smart enough to, to notice gross greed and aversion. But the Buddha didn't just talk about two poisons, he talked about three poisons. He didn't just talk about two distortions of mind, he talked about three distortions. Greed, aversion and delusion. And all of these are very tricky, well, you're probably familiar with this, but the delusion one is super tricky. This is a super tricky distortion of mind because it's very difficult to see. I was thinking earlier today of a conversation that some of the Western monks had with Ajahn Chah many years ago. They're out walking with him outside the front of the monastery and one of them, I think it was uh, Warapanyo, asked Ajahn Chah, he said, you know, with greed we know what, what there is there, we know what to do with it. With anger we know what there is there, we know what to do with it. But what about delusion? How can you recognize delusion? And Ajahn Chah answers straight back, he says, delusion is not recognizing when there's greed and aversion. Delusion is when you don't know what's going on. And the bad news is, I'm sorry to tell you, is that we're all deluded. <laughs> there's all sorts of stuff that we're carrying that we don't know about it. Now, I don't want to come on with some kind of story about original sin or you know any such story as that. That's not what we're talking about here. We're you know, Buddhists actually talk about original purity. Uh, consciousness is a, originally inherently pure. Uh, if we can clear all the defilements around, what's 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 always been there is uh, is pure and and radiant, and and has within it the wisdom and compassion that we're looking for. So we're not talking about delusion as being a, an ultimate fault, but we do need to be careful that we're not just because we can't see delusion that we're not deluded. Just because we can't see everything, you know, maybe we're sitting there peaceful and having a great time, and and uh, think everything's just fine, and then a few weeks later, our whole world falls apart. A very dear friend of mine, the late Venerable Myokioni, a Roshi in the uh, Rinzai tradition, um, some of you may have heard of, also known as Dr. Ermgard Schlügel. She used to teach, and uh, she was teaching Zen. She lived in Japan for ten years, and. One of the images she used to like shearing was that of a frog sitting on a lily pad. Just sitting there, happy, sunning itself on the lily pad. Bawk. bark. Mary Kenny could make great frogs. <laughs> what she didn't see was this great big grass snake coming up behind her. Just ready to... Tow. And so it is with solution. We can be very concentrated In meditation, we can be having great experiences. You know, that's one reason why meditation is so dangerous, is that you can, it doesn't take a lot of will. I mean, I was very willful when I started meditating, and I had some fascinating experiences. Tears of bliss, and just, life is wonderful, amazing. And for a, a wee while, you know, once I left where I was staying, went back down to work in the city again, life fell apart big time just because we're concentrated just because we're having an interesting meditation experience doesn't mean to say that it's good for us doesn't mean to say that we're actually dealing with creative aversion and delusion you know, these, the forces of delusion are uh, very subtle and very hard to see which is why there's not many people who manage to untangle the knots and, and free themselves from these forces so just because um, we think meditation is a good idea and maybe we've had some interesting experiences in meditation doesn't mean to say that it's taking us to wholeness. You know, we need to be very careful about how we view meditation. You, you can take on macrobiotics and have some amazing transformations. You, know, you can start feeling really healthy and full of energy. But so what? That doesn't mean to say that we're whole. We can start meditating and we can have some very interesting experiences, but that doesn't mean to say that we've dealt with the pockets of delusion. So the reason I'm raising this evening is not to scare everybody, not at all, rather to encourage us to be careful how we enter into meditation. Careful and caring about ourselves and about each other. Because one of the best ways of dealing with the dangers of confronting delusion is depending on each other. That's uh, I think one of the reasons why the Buddha you know, talked about Kalyanamitta as being essential in the holy life he didn't say it's just a good idea if you can come across it Kalyanamitta or spiritual companions are essential they're really important and uh, yeah one of the reasons is because if we're living with people or we're associating with people who see us In other words, they see through our games. They see through the tricks we play. Uh, That's a great blessing. That's really beneficial. We we should seek such people out. And the Buddha encouraged us to seek such people out. They may not be the people you like. They may not necessarily be the people that you prefer to be with. But if they're honest and trustworthy and insightful and willing to hold up a mirror just at the moment when you're about to default to playing one of your games again, well that's a great blessing something to really be treasured if we can recognize the dangers uh, inherent in uh, in meditation and, and the, how the forces of delusion can actually be hiding there lurking there without our noticing them and then we start obviously become concerned well how can i protect myself how can i what can i do about it well, this is one of the things we can do about it, is seek out like-minded friends, you know, people who, who have a, an affinity with our orientation and practice, our commitment to awakening. Find such people, not to, and not to wait until things are getting really tough. Mm-hmm. It's like, if you move to a new town, and um, you're feeling healthy and everything's fine, do you wait until you get sick before you find a doctor? Well, I don't think that's a very good idea myself. I think when you move to a new town and what you do is you ask around. You say, which is a local GP who who likes to listen to their clients and and uh, which GP has got a good reputation and you do some research and then you go and you interview the GP and then you register with that GP. That, I think would be a wise approach. Not because you're sick, but because you're not sick but one day you will get sick. And so we make preparation and And likewise, we don't wait until we're in a spiritual crisis. Well, it's not wise to. The wise thing to do is to seek out like-minded friends, even if it's on the internet. These days with that wonderful thing called Skype, you can have regular conversation with dumber friends all around the world. I was talking to one today in America. We we Skype each other once once a month and he talks with me about his practice, and we just share an interest in, in and we, we kind of confirm our shared interest in awakening. And that dialogue that takes place is a way of helping protect ourselves. You know, we protect ourselves from being caught up in delusion. And like One of the things he was telling me today was that he's realized that uh, the thing for him to do in meditation is just to try and stop judging. That's what he's going to do. From now on, he's not going to do any other meditation. He's just going to sit there for 15 minutes and stop judging. And I listened to him I thought, well, that's you know, that's going in the right direction. But I think there's a, a little twist to that. There's a little taint in there. And, and, and pointed out to him, well, judging has got a, an important function. Uh, to be able to discern or discriminate between what is wholesome and unwholesome, safe, not safe, when it's appropriate to be vulnerable, when it's not appropriate to be vulnerable. That discerning, discriminating, judging mind is actually very important to us. We don't want you know, to get rid of that. In fact, we, we really want to cultivate that. But in his case, clearly it was a compulsive judging tendency that he was wanting to address. He said, whatever I do, if I try to develop my posture... So, you know, even if posture is good, well, I, you know, I'm getting off on feeling good about my posture. And then when posture is not good, I'm getting all critical about my posture being not good. So he's come to recognizing that, and I think quite rightly so, that as a very early stage of practice, we want to be able to get a handle on the judging mind. And But the habit, which I would say the forces of delusion in his case, was, you know, tainting his good aspirations. He wanted to address the issue of having a compulsive judging mind, yes, but he was actually trying too hard. He was going to try and stop judging. So as the conversation went along, we ended up with actually what he's going to do is spend 15 minutes getting interested in the judging mind, just interested in the reality of the judging mind. And so when judging, you know, you sit there doing nothing, and then uh, a voice comes up and just says, you're wasting your time. Oh, this judging, oh, judging mind. All oh, right, I'm judging. I shouldn't be judging. Oh, what's that? Yeah, judging the judging mind. We keep falling back, falling back into another level of awareness, until you get to the point where you can start to feel you don't have to judge the judging mind. That picking and choosing, taking sides tendency of the mind is not alternate. It's an activity that's become chronic, you know, to the point of becoming an addiction. It's very difficult to untangle. But with right mindfulness and with careful investigation, you can undo that tangle, you can undo that. And, and so in that dialogue, I mean, there was an example of, of where, you know, just talking these things over together. You say, OK, well, the aspiration is very good. His aspiration was excellent, but it wasn't pure. It wasn't perfect. And so in dialogue, we were able to uh, purify and, and, and increase the, the goodness that he was, he was um, cultivating. So spiritual community is um, and spiritual companionship are a real asset in preparing ourselves, protecting ourselves from being caught up in the forces of delusion. We don't know what we don't know. We might know that we're greedy and angry and all that, but we don't know what we don't know. We don't even necessarily know sometimes that we're even greedy and angry. You know, the forces of delusion, they get—they get, they, they basically they get embedded in consciousness very early on in life. We're born with... We're not born awakened. We may be born undifferentiated, but that's different from being awakened. You can't say children are awakened. You can say they're undifferentiated. They may be in a state of bliss... But it's not a wise state of bliss. They get up to all sorts of things that are not necessarily wise, like sticking their hands in the fire and stuffing their face with sugar. You can't say that's wise. So we get, uh, very early on in life, we get encoded, we get conditioned with tendencies of mind that we don't even know about, like tendencies of greed or ill will. And, And these forces can be operating within us and and we can be using meditation, we can be using our meditation just to make ourselves even more deluded. I've seen this happen. I've seen people, serious committed meditators, spend decades working on their concentration, working on even their wisdom, but not addressing a fundamental habit to get angry. Yeah. I know people who've meditated for years and years and years and yet they're carrying a, a huge burden of unacknowledged grief and um, came from a, a sense of loss at a very early stage of life. What we can do in meditation is when these feelings come up, resentment, anger, we, we just reenact what we learnt very early on in life. We encapsulate our denial of anger and push it down even more, mm. make it even more difficult to access. You know, we can take our sadness and our morbidity and coat it. We can encase it with our samadhi and make it even more difficult to access. Now this is not, I should add, what the Buddha was encouraging. It's not the Buddha was giving bad teachings. The Buddha was talking about mindfulness. Okay, he did talk about concentration. He did talk about bliss. But prior to the the concentration and the bliss, he talked about the mindfulness. The mindfulness is the primary condition that if we haven't got mindfulness, then even if we've got bliss and we've got great samadhi, we're leaving ourselves very vulnerable. And so, uh, one of the benefits of again of spiritual community, spiritual companionship, is some of these deeply encased, locked-in habitual tendencies that we maybe we brought in with them from previous life. You know, maybe we. Pick them up from our parents, and you know, if you live with parents who are fighting, or guilt-ridden, or full of grief, you, can, you just pick up the stuff. You, know, you just pick up the energy, and you can you can think that being angry is normal. In fact, I did for many years. I've been a monk for many years before I just realised I was angry. I thought there's something wrong with the abbot of the monastery. <laughs> well, there might have been a few things wrong with the abbot of the monastery, but actually, what I was adding to it wasn't helpful. I was just angry at him, very angry at him. But that was great to realise that. It took me many years, unfortunately, to get there, to realise that I was just angry. But when I realised I was angry, I stopped feeling depressed. Yeah. Depression, you know, sometimes can depression can. you come across depression in meditation and you think, oh, this is a disaster. You realise that you've been depressed for many years. No, not necessarily. Depression can be perfectly functional. Denying anger can be the appropriate thing to do. Denying sadness can be the appropriate thing to do. Uh, if you've been subjected to unfortunate painful experiences early on in life, and the, the pain and the rage and the, the sorrow, the grief, the dukkha, can be too much to bear for a little being. And so to put a cap on it and hold it down, encase it like a spider just spins a web around its fly that it just caught, it's going to digest it later. That can be perfectly appropriate. That can be perfectly suitable. And then you come across meditation and you start realizing how depressed you are. You don't have to judge depression. We don't say there's anything wrong with depression. If we have non-judgmental here and now whole body-mind awareness, we say, "All oh, right, there's depression. Yeah, this is what depression feels like. We don't have to take sides against depression. And what we can be doing in that process of developing that kind of awareness, that receptive awareness... We start finding we can develop these other really essential qualities like kindness, like patience, like energy. Yeah. When we have a sufficient amount of these qualities of kindness, of patience, of focus, of energy, all controlled or held in balance by mindfulness, then quite naturally, and I do think it happens quite naturally, we discover quite spontaneously we don't have to be depressed anymore. Now we can be angry. We can be sad. Not become angry or become sad. That's different. Becoming angry or becoming sad is when you get caught up in it and you start acting out on it. And I am angry and I am sad. That's, that's becoming. And in that case, you know, maybe one needs a therapist. Yeah. But from the spiritual, spiritual perspective, to be angry or to feel anger or to feel sadness or to feel fear if that's what's present, that's fine. That's what's called for. From a perspective of mindfulness, we know it. It's like this, it's just so. And from that point, maybe our meditation takes a, a different tack. Instead of our meditation be concentrating on the breath and an interest in having a an, an some sort of special experience, our meditation is more a matter of, of applying the, or rekindling or or quickening the memory that this is just so, the perception, this is just so, anger is just so, fear is just so. Now, it can take us a very long time to get there. Maybe we will never get there. But certainly, if we approach meditation in this sort of careful approach, we will make inroads. We'll start to feel like, actually, this is what it means to grow up. This is what it means to grow up. I was talking with a good friend recently about being 60, or in fact he's over 60, and we were agreeing that basically we both have a feeling that, well, just starting to feel like grown-up now. Kind of late starter, really, from one perspective. But from another perspective, I don't think that's the case. I think many of us arrive at meditation with all sorts of naive, idealistic, deluded ideas about what we're going to get out of meditation, and we think because we can have a little moment of bliss or a little momentary experience of peace that that's going to solve all our problems. It's not. You know, we need to be much more careful to come back when the time is right to maybe let go of concentrating on the breath. Maybe let go of trying to have another insight or another interesting experience and see can I receive myself as a whole body mind experience in this moment without any judgment? Yes, there is anger. Can we have anger as. Can we see that anger is just so? Anger is like this it's hot, it's like fire. But do we have to get burnt by fire? No. Children get burnt by fire because they're not wise, they haven't been educated yet, they don't know, they don't have a conscious relationship with fire, they don't have an informed conscious relationship with fire. We don't have an informed conscious relationship with something like anger. And so we keep grabbing it. We keep identifying with it. And it's understandable because we probably got conditioned very early on in life like that. All sorts of collective opinions that society comes up with about having certain experiences, certain moods, certain feelings. We're not allowed to have them. or they're too threatening to have them. If they're too intense, we feel like we're going to be taken over by them. That's perfectly understandable. But when we come across the path of inner inquiry and we start to exercise mindfulness, we start to potentise consciousness with concentration, then we need to be very, very careful about how we approach these experiences. Sometimes we have denied energy, denied anger, denied fear, denied sorrow for so long that it's become distorted and that's what does tend to happen with denied energy if you deny energy push it down for long enough the chances are it will come out in some form of extreme or some twisted expression so like with anger there are plenty of examples probably most of us have heard of where children have been abused very early on in life and this tremendous anger that they experience quite understandably they don't know how to live through it with awareness and to drop it, but they bottle it up, they push it down and push it down, and then once they reach adolescence and, and adulthood, it becomes too much to handle, and then they start to act out in pathological ways. And, and then society just slaps them in jail and just condemns them and says they're a failure. Well, that's not necessarily always the wisest approach to deal with denied energy. Or if you're not an extrovert, then... You know, you're an introvert sort of character and you've got denied pain in that area, denied anger. then the way it starts to come out is in a, in a twisted, distorted way, like self-hating or hating life. You know I hate life. This you know, just can't see any point in anything. You know, I hate myself, kill myself. Now from a rational perspective, you know you might be a together enough adult to know that killing yourself is not a good thing to do. And you may not even want to encourage it in yourself or anybody else. I would never encourage it in in anybody to kill themselves. However, this irrational impulse, where's it coming from? It's like another being. And it is another being. This denied energy has been locked away as another being. And if we use our samadhi to just keep encapsulating it more, it's not like a bit of sand in an oyster going to turn into a beautiful pearl. Uh, It's going to turn into something very toxic that will continue to distort and disfigure our perceptions. So the forces of delusion are something that we have to really prepare ourselves for, I would suggest. It's not the case that just going into meditation and having some nice concentration experiences and some nice bliss and some some happiness and practicing loving kindness and loving all beings, that that's going to resolve all things. What we need to do is to make sure that we are integrating whatever we learn in formal meditation, whatever we experience on our cushion, we also can bring into our daily life. Again, to quote my very dear friend, the late Menor Myokioni, she always used to talk about daily life practice and formal practice, as like two legs. You go forward on one leg, and then you go forward on the other leg. And sometimes she would get one of her students to, to stand up and demonstrate this. Now, if you keep going forward on one leg, what happens? And of course, they demonstrate and fall over. But anyway, basically, everybody got the point that that's not the way. Going forward on meditation, meditation, meditation. We can do that in the beginning for many of us. That's the case. We get introduced to meditation, and it's such a break. It's such a relief. You know, you drop into some sort of mild samadhi, and oh, what a relief! You can see clearly, think straight. For a few days, your whole body feels refreshed and you think, this is it. It's like your first girlfriend or boyfriend. You think, this is it, this is the one. Well, we all know probably the first boyfriend or girlfriend was not the one. And likewise, the first initial experiences with a little bit of concentration is not the one, is not the way. We can get deluded. But because meditation experiences are so powerful, they're also very deluding. And people can become addicted to their initial level of samadhi and tranquility. And if you try and interfere with their meditation routine, and you've got all hell to, to deal with. I mean, people get really, really attached to my meditation. Get them to do the gardening or mow the lawns or something, you've really got something to deal with. You know. What's that about? Is that mindfulness? Is that what the Buddha was talking about? Mindfulness is the, the path to freedom from suffering? So if we are uh, approaching this in a, in a careful way, in a cautious way, then we're going to be ready to learn from getting it wrong. You know, it's not the case that we have to get it right. But if we are still caught in a compulsive judging mind, well, that's very difficult. You know, when we get it wrong, we think, I shouldn't have got it wrong. Is there's something wrong with getting it wrong? Yeah. What's unfortunate is if we get it wrong, we keep getting it wrong because we judge it. But if we get it wrong, you know, in other words, we go a little bit out of balance and we suffer more, but no judgment, we see. And so, All right, okay, that's, that's, that's not helping, so we move the other way. And so that's the importance of integrating what we learn in our cushion into everyday life. <coughs> Sp- <coughs> Spending too much time on your cushion, or too much time on a retreat, and you can really start to think you're the bee's knees. Yeah. Ajahn Chah used to say that uh, you can't tell whether a monk is any good by what he sits like, or when he's on retreat. See what he's like on a festival day when the monastery is inundated with hundreds or thousands of people. Extreme, intoxicating, seductive, sights, smells and tastes, all invading the monastery in one day. And you see, you know, has this monk got it together or not? That's the way to tell. Not when he's sitting on his cushion or she's sitting on her cushion. You know, and perfectly conducive experiences. So, yes, we might think that our meditation is together when we're sitting on a cushion, but it's, if we want to bear in mind the difficulties inherent in the forces of delusion, well, then we also want to check to see are we integrating this into our daily life? We go forward on one leg, we go forward on the other leg. And this way, hopefully. We will find that we will proceed with a sense of balance, and if we're balanced, then we can pick up speed. Then we can really give some emphasis to meditation. Then we'll know how to deepen at what time with what degree of intensity. It's not dissimilar, I think, to uh, driving a car. You know, if the wheels are not balanced, <laughs> you ever experienced that? If the wheels are not balanced, you can't go over twenty miles an hour. And I remember my brother's car. You know, it was an old what was it, an old Ford console, I think, that he picked up at one stage. And uh, he couldn't go over 25 miles an hour, otherwise the whole thing was rattling. It was like it was going to fall apart because the wheels weren't balanced. you get the wheels balanced, then you can go fast. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.